You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. This is also the first episode of 2016, and I would like to thank each and every one of you that supported the Unmute Podcast in its inaugural year. Thank you for listening and sharing the podcast with others. The support has just been overwhelming, and I'm so grateful that you enjoyed the podcast and have found it useful. This year, I think we have another super lineup of guests, and we'll be discussing such issues as masculinity, race, anger and black rage, pornography, homosexuality, immigration, and so much more. Our first guest of 2016 is Mina Krishnamurthy. Mina is an assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy and the Program in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the University of Michigan. Her research interest is in political philosophy. She is currently developing an account of the nature and value of political distrust, particularly as it is formulated and explored in the work of radical political thinkers such as Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. She also has a longstanding interest in theories of global justice and the nature of our duties to aid the global poor. In this episode, we talk political distrust, the global poor, and so much more. Hello, Mina. Welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Mina, tell me, how did you get interested in philosophy? Right. I think, you know, in many ways, my story is like other people's in the sense that, you know, I didn't start in my undergraduate degree thinking I was going to go into philosophy. Um, like many other people of Indian descent, I thought that I was going to go into medicine. And so I was in the health sciences program, which is pretty much like a pre-med track um, at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. And uh, I had to take all these science credits. And as my one option, I took philosophy. And, you know, right away, I just loved it. I just loved everything about it. I loved the readings we were doing. I loved all the discussion. And I especially loved um, writing the papers. And Luckily enough, I actually did really, really well in that class too, which gave me the confidence that I think I needed to think about doing philosophy seriously. So that, taking philosophy, but combined with the fact that I was actually taking uh, what's uh, sometimes called a super class, which is, you know, somewhere between 800 and 1,200 students sitting in a big lecture together. Um, I was taking a super, a super class in, in health sciences, kinesiology, and I had this really, really amazing professor. He just, I mean, even with a class that size, was so engaging um, and such a wonderful professor, I thought, I want to do that. I want to be this person when I grow up. And so I thought, you know, I didn't want to do that in health sciences or kinesiology. I wanted to do that in philosophy because I love philosophy so much. So uh, that is kind of when, you know, it sort of happened. In a way, it was a bit like love at first sight, but maybe not, uh, you know, in the sense that I think in many ways, the method of uh, arson and analyzing arguments was something I did around the dinner table with my family ever since I was a child. So I think it felt like love at first sight, but in many ways, I think my own life kind of geared me towards philosophy. So I'm trying to imagine your parents' response, right? Thinking that their daughter was going to go into the medical profession, and then she ended up becoming a philosopher. So what did your family think? Actually, you know what? They were really, really supportive. I mean, in a sense, cause, because, you know, my parents are Indian. And they're of the Hindu religion and Hinduism, like religion and philosophy, there's really no distinction. So philosophy in some ways, I think, is very in- inherent to Indian culture. So they were very, I mean, very open minded about it. They just wanted me to do something I was very passionate about. And so they were, you know, very, very supportive of my move. 
In your view, Mina, what do you think is true democracy and what values underwrite it? Right. So that's a good question. I think, you know, at its most um, at its most basic, I think that democracy is really sort of two things. It's sort of that idea of formal uh, equality where people have the equal equal rights to vote. But I also think it's something more substantive in the sense that it's not just having equal votes, it's having an equally effective or influential vote. So I think those two things really comprise, um, you know, the basic of de- basics of democracy. The second question, which was, you know, what are the values? I think, you know, I'm a pluralist about the value of democracy or the justification behind democracy. And so I think there are a number of values that underwrite or justify democracy. My own work uh, focusing has kind of developed some arguments in favor of democracy based on John Rawls's work. And I've argued that there's sort of three really core values, self-respect, autonomy, and then ownership. And I think all of those values when we focus on them actually give rise to, to democracy. So is the United States democratic? <laughs> um, I think, you know, my answer probably won't surprise you. I think, you know, I mean, in part, I think democracy is on a sliding scale. So some things are more democratic than others. And in some ways, the U.S. is de- is democratic. But when we ask, is it sort of genuinely democratic? I think the question is whether it reaches a certain threshold. And I think the answer is probably no, it's not genuinely or robustly democratic. And I think that's because in many ways, you know, demo- I guess America has in many ways become an oligarchy. I think it's ruled by the interests of a small group of people. Um, so in that sense, while people might, you know, in terms of the law, people have equal rights to vote, they don't have substantive political equality. I don't think that people have an equally influential vote in this country. Um, so looking at some recent work by Mar- Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page, we see that, you know, they've done some work showing that the preferences of the rich have a more impact, a greater impact on policy decisions than middle income and poor Americans. So this is suggesting, you know, right, that rich Americans have a more, yeah, have more political influence. I think when we think about the way that financing of political campaigns and the way that lobbying works in this country, again, it gives people with money more say. And I think if we were to look in terms of racial minorities, I think we would see something similar, that people of color have a less influential say um, in this country, particularly, um, you know, African-Americans. So I think in this way, you know, America is not a democracy. And so this brings me to, you know, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about kind of the embassy of this country and how it came about. This notion of, of individualism, which is very kind of embedded in the idea of, of America. Do you think there's any hope that we would ever be democratic? I'm like, at least I think there's a bit of a sliding scale. I think that we can definitely improve. And I, I mean, maybe this is naive and I'm Canadian. So maybe, you know, maybe we should take what I'm saying right now with a grain of salt. But I'm hopeful. And I think this movement towards, you know, towards Sanders, as we're seeing in the polls right now, is a sign that people are looking for, you know, a, a more democratic landscape in America, hearkening back to some of those roots. So my, I'm hoping that maybe even, you know, in the near future, we may see, see some change. Now, somebody argue that distrust is a barrier to a, a truly democratic institution. But you are currently developing a theory of what you call valuable distrust. So, so tell us, how is distrust valuable? And how has Martin Luther King Jr. helped you to develop a theory of valuable distrust? Right. So I guess, you know, the work really starts with Dr. King's work. Really, I mean, people think of King as you know, that mushy, gushy fellow. He was all about love and friendship and forgiveness. But I was really interested to see when I read King, you know, his work in detail, actually there was a real strong current of what we would call a more negative attitude, an attitude of distrust. 
um, you know, I started with the, in my own work, I started just sort of writing mostly about the letter, but looking at now his work more broadly, there's this current of, of this, I don't really trust the white, I distrust the white moderates. And for me, I'm talking here about political distrust. And political distrust is a set of beliefs. It's a belief that basically um, another person or group of people will not act as justice requires. And King is clear that he does not believe, I mean, he's confident, sorry, in his belief that the white moderates will not do what justice requires, despite the fact that they have really good commitments. I mean, the white moderates are sort of like what Shannon Sullivan has called the, the good white folk. Um, and they, you know, believe in racial equality. Uh, they believe that segregation is bad, but they, you know, but King just doesn't believe that they're going to do anything about it. And in turn, I think that distrust in this, understood in this sense, is plays a pivotal motivational role in the civil rights movement. I think that it's distrust that motivated Dr. King and his supporters to engage in a social movement that changed the democratic landscape of America. So for me, this is where the moral value comes. In a sense, it plays this moral motivational role that it moves people to act as justice requires. Should it, should it always remain? Or should it always at least attempt to transform into something else? So should, should we try to transform my distrust, even in, in the action, in the mobile action or social action that we participate as a result of it? But should the end result be trust? Right. So I think that's a really good question. So I think, you know, one thing to say here, since I'm talking about political distrust, I think that actually it's really important that we maintain at least some level of distrust, because in my work, I argue that in a sense, political distrust is part of that, that system of check and balances. It's a way of making sure that democracy and justice stay on the straight and narrow, so to speak, so that we are pushing forward and trying to make progress. And because of our own biases and the way the vested interests come to play in politics, we need another check. Um, and I think having this element of distrust, I think, in that way can serve as that important check and keep us um, in the point us in the right direction. You, you, you give the example of Martin Luther King and the, and the white moderate. Let's try to change things a little bit. Let's think about white liberals that march with King, right? So mm -hmm. let's separate them from the, from the white moderates, mm -hmm. right? So this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking about, um, we can kind of translate this into today. We think about the feminist movement, for example, and you have, you know, kind of this notion of white feminism, right? And you have, you know, other women of color. And although they, they meet, they understand that there needs to be equal rights um, uh, amongst women, issues of intersexuality have not been really taken up, right? And so it's this, this belief that when it comes down to it, <laughs> some people, well, some women of color believe when it comes down to it, white feminists may not have their back to a certain extent, right? So, um, so I'm thinking about yes, even in the yeah, fight, yeah. When, they're, they're, when they're together fighting a particular cause, should a level right. of distrust be there or is that poisonous to the movement? Yeah, so I think that, you know, part of the answer, at least for King, comes from some of his other views about what underwrites distrust. So another part of my work is trying to figure out why King really thinks that we should distrust people, um, you know, the white moderates. And so for him, part of it is an epistemic claim, um, which is that, look, they can't know what it's like to be to be black in America and to suffer particularly suffer the way that we have suffered and so because there isn't this knowing of what it's like as a result there's always a kind of epistemic gap and so in a sense I think because of that gap we have to be a bit distrustful even when we have allies or active bystanders um, you know on our side I think that we do have to, I mean you know again things are scalar we don't have to have a full Wide sense of distrust, but there might be a little bit of guardedness there. Um, and this way, I mean, if we see King in this light, it brings us in some brings him in some ways closer to Malcolm X, who had a kind of a similar view that even uh, the people who were acting, you know, on your side, that maybe we can't fully trust them. 
So I think in this sense, I think that, you know, King's commitments actually lead him to, to reaching a somewhat similar conclusion. You've, you've not only done work on democracy, but also in relationship to the, to the global poor, especially duties to aid global poor. So in what ways do you believe the global poor distress of the West is warranted? Right. So it's interesting because I actually, I mean, I haven't as of yet thought, I mean, in terms of my own writing or work, I haven't really thought about distrust in the global sphere, but certainly there is some. And so a lot of my own work is focused on international aid as it's distributed by international institutions, such as the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. And uh, I think there is a kind of a distrust of these institutions and the people that work for them because people in the developing world have felt that they were pushing sort of their own interests and their own agenda um, and not really promoting justice. And so I do think there is a kind of distrust at the global level around development. And I do think it's warranted. And the reason that I think it's warranted is because of history. I mean, this is one of the other things that King appeals to in his work about why he distrusts the white moderates. You know, looking again and again historically and seeing how the white moderates didn't act when they probably should have. Um, in this case, the global case, it's a case of, I think, you know, um, people in these agencies who are representing developed countries acting, but acting in the wrong way. Um, so we know that, for example, aid, when it's distributed in these institutions, is typically done on the basis of conditions, economic policy conditions. And it's basically, there have been some very important studies by uh, Vreeland and Pajorski that have shown that, you know, countries that adhered more closely to these conditions as prescribed by the IMF and the World Bank typically actually did worse with respect to growth. In hmm. fact, they actually had decreased growth as a result of following these conditions. And part of the reason we know this is that a lot of the conditions that were attached to these loans, at least historically, weren't really there to address the problems that were causing the poverty um, and the economic um, disruption in the first place. And so there is a kind of, because of this history, there is a kind of distrust, and it seems warranted because we know that these conditions failed so systematically. Of course, things have gotten somewhat better in the sense that there are much less, fewer conditions attached. But again, there's still a lot of worry that these conditions aren't properly tailored to the needs of those countries that are borrowing. And so it seems warranted as a result. Yeah, this has me, has me thinking, you know, when, when global disasters happen across the world or even kind of these injustices that take place, there is a part of me as an American that says, you know, our government is going to do something about it, right? And, and I can't wait to see our government do something about it, right? To stand up for those who are who are facing kind of atrocities or to stand up for those who are facing tragedies, right? Because we have the resources to do so and the power to do so. And, and, and I don't know where that comes from, right? A part of it comes from, it feels good to see an institution that I distrust, <laughs> at least stand up for something that I perceive as, as ethical, right? To make take a, a, a ethical and a normative stance against something. But then I wonder how much of it is all political, right? So there's some instances in which I feel like our government should speak out about things that they never speak out about. And a lot of it has to do with economic interests. And so mm -hmm. I, I wonder for, for you, and I don't even know if you can answer this question, do you think aiding the poor or aiding other nations, is that philanthropic? Or is it business? <laughs> and is it wrong to say? Or is it unethical for e even for it to be business? Yeah, so I mean, my views on this are that I think people have mixed motives. You know, I think that I think it's philanthropic in the sense that people really do want to do good. I think that government officials who work in these kinds of institutions internationally and distribute aid, I think ultimately there is a part of them that wants to do, do good. But is it purely 
you know, altruistic. I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't think that. I don't think that's the case. People, uh, countries um, need to promote, they do promote their own interests in these kinds of institutions. And to some extent, they're elected to do so. The people that represent America, let's say in international institutions that distribute international development aid are, you know, often finance ministers. They're people who have been elected to represent American interests. So in some sense, they're doing their job. So, I mean, in that sense, I think it, com- it complicates this issue of, you know, whether this is really altruistic or not. In some sense, it is, and in some sense, it isn't. But even though it is, in a sense, they're doing it to represent American interests. And so it's only when the people of America will really come to say, well, actually, we really think that it's important that we prioritize the interests of the global poor will things, I think, fundamentally change. And I am, in general, a bit skeptical about international institutions and international aid. I have, I have at least, you know, suggested in some of my work that um, maybe we should think about dismantling the IMF and the World Bank, and we should, uh, um, you know, promote either re- uh, lending institutions, or that maybe we need to look altogether at some other kinds of solutions. We know that things like give directly, direct cash transfers, actually you know, alleviate individual poverty fairly well. And so maybe that's just something we need to think about doing on a larger scale. And maybe we avoid some of the politics of it if we do it like this or a one-to-one kind of way. So let's talk about duties to the global poor. Institutionally, what do you think are our duties to the global poor? And where do they come from? And also, individually, what do you think are our duties to the global poor? And where do those duties come from? Right. So I think that there are two different types of duties that we may have. So some duties we might just have as individuals or humans. And we might want to say that um, we have duties to other people in developing countries who aren't even having their basic human rights met simply because they're human. So I think that gets us to a certain level of duties that we have, which is to establish basic human rights for everybody across the globe. And those are humanitarian duties. But I do think, um, and those are duties that we might have have just as mere individuals, but I do think there are institutional duties as well to aid the global poor. And so one of the main questions in global justice is the question of whether, how strong those duties are, if there are any. Are they as strong as the duties that you have to your fellow citizens, your fellow American citizens, or are they weaker than that? And so um, my own view is that I think that the kinds of principles that apply within a country um, are the same kinds of principles that ought to apply more globally. So, for example, one principle of justice that's been advocated for by John Rawls and many of his followers is the difference principle, which says that um, any inequalities in uh, income and wealth have to be distributed such that the worst off are made as well off as they can be. And similarly, I think that that kind of a principle, basically make the worst off as well off as they can be, um, ought to be implemented globally. Of course, there's a question of why. Why would someone think that? And one of the reasons we've given, at least at the local level, is that we think that we have these really strong demanding duties of what's kind of referred to as egalitarian egalitarian duties um, to our fellow citizens because we're in this kind of coercive relationship. And the only way we can... Uh, justify the coercive relationship that we have to each other that's coercive that is through the state um, is by implementing kind of egalitarian duties of justice. And so I think something similar holds at the global level because I think that international financial institutions that are actually coercive and the only way that we could possibly justify the coercion to everybody, especially the world being coerced, is by saying that the system actually makes you as well off as you can be. And so that's kind of what I've been writing about uh, recently. So let me kind of flip the question a little bit. Do the global poor have duties? And in what ways can we, or have we blocked their agency in fulfilling these particular duties? Right. So I think, 
you know, I do think that individuals within poor countries have duties to each other similarly to to arrange, you know, their society so that it meets the principles of distributive justice. So they have duties to help the needy country. Um, of course, they may not be able to do so because of the poverty that they're in. I think one of the other duties that they have definitely is a duty to of resistance, a duty to resist, you know, global arrangements that um, promote injustice in their countries. So there are duties to fight fight these systemic problems, I think. Let's talk about race for a moment as you talk about the global poor. How is race relevant to discussions of global poverty? Right. So this is an issue that's really not discussed at all. Um, and I know this because I am now teaching a course this term called Global Justice, Race, and Gender. And the emphasis is really on race. And I looked around trying to see what other people have been teaching or uh, writing about this issue. I talked with Charles Mills. I talked with other people to see what they thought. And we all kind of cumulatively agreed collectively that there really wasn't a lot of work being done on global justice and race. So thinking about how race matters to global economic injustice. Um, there are a few pieces, luckily one by Charles Mills, of course, um, and a few other people. So I think the, that's a really good question because I think it's important and no one is asking that question. So one thing is that we don't have a lot of data. So we know that there are... Uh, you know, a large number of people who live on less than a dollar American equivalent to American dollars a day. And what we know is about 1.3 billion people are living with less than a dollar twenty-five a day. What we don't know is how many of those people are of color. And I mean, the best we can do is look at the data we have on countries. So we know that people from you know, there's a certain amount of uh, people from Asia and Africa that fall under this 125 metric. And if we put those together, we get something like, you know, maybe a little more than or a little under 70% of the people that suffer from extreme deprivation, that is having a dollar twenty-five a day, um, are likely people of color. Again, there's no real data. I can just glean this from the data that we have about countries and then making inferences about the race of people in those countries. But roughly, you know, 70% of the people living with less than a dollar twenty-five a day are people of color. And yet this isn't something that's really being talked about in philosophy. Um, so I think it's an important issue that's been ignored. What's the relevance of race to questions about global justice? Well, I think we have to look historically at the processes of colonialism, which have really been, you know, one of the core uh, processes that have, you know, led to global economic uh, deprivation. And I think if we look at a lot of the justifications around colonialism, they're often steeped in a kind of racist ideology. So you see that when the British were colonizing India, for example, there was often talk about India being a barbaric people. They needed the British rule, um, despite the fact that India was a long, well-established civilization with a certain degree of wealth. Despite that fact, apparently Indians were barbaric and needed to be conquered and ruled by the British. And we see similar kinds of ideologies around the you know, colonization of various parts in Africa. So I think in that sense, racism you know, it's really important to think about in these issues. And then I think, and this is something I'm thinking through now as I'm teaching this class is, how have these kinds of ideologies filtered into the way that international financial institutions have been set up and designed? So in the IMF and the World Bank, essentially votes are handed out on the basis of economic status. So richer countries have more votes than poorer countries. Um, the U.S. usually predominantly has the greatest set amount of votes, for example, in the IMF, um, the only country with single veto power. But the important thing here to note is that, you know, when you look at who has lesser votes, yes, it's the countries that are less rich, um, the ones that are poor, but also the countries where they predominantly consist of people of color. And so some people have suggested that the arrangements within these institutions are also racist. And, maybe, and 
a lot of the time when you see the expression, some of the dialogues around why it's this way, it's a similar kind of ideology. Oh, these people don't know what they're doing. They don't know about economic development. They need us to kind of lead the reins um, so that we can, you know, make progress, et cetera. Which again, you know, it's involving that stereotype of these people of color. They know what they're about. They don't really know. When it, and that leaves out the point that, you know, a lot of the poverty we see now is the result of colonization. Um, and coercion and all kinds of other, you know, morally objectionable processes. It's not just because these people don't know what they're doing. Do you think that as a result of this, we are not getting closer to solving global poverty, but we're getting further away? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I don't think we've made enough progress on the question about how do we design institutions and alleviate global poverty. And I think part of it's because it's leaving out some of these important features about race and colonialism and so on. But I think on the other hand, I look at work by people like Banerjee and Diffalo and other people who are development ec- economists doing good work on the ground, doing working a randomized control, showing us that we can make some pro- progress on poverty alleviation. We can find we can target specific problems and we can make progress. Can we alleviate or eliminate global poverty as this one big phenomenon? Maybe not. But can we get people some anti-malaria drugs? Can we get them to stop having rotavirus? Et cetera, et cetera. Yes. And I think those are all part of the problem of global poverty. So I think if we see them as smaller problems, there's certain problems we can target. And I do feel hopeful about making progress on those issues, even if I'm more skeptical about progress in some deeper institutional structural sense. Tell me about Philosopher with her as an emphasis. What is it and why did you decide to put it together? The philosopher where the her is the emphasis is a blog that, I mean, the main focus is featuring rigorous work by women who work in philosophy. Um, I guess the way that I came to doing the blog was that I was very lucky to be a participant in the mentorship program for pre-tenure women in philosophy um, run by Ann Cudd and Louise Anthony. And I went to that and it was so energizing and so positive that I thought that I want to do something to try to make the situation for women in the profession a bit better. And I want them to be taken seriously as real, you know, hardcore philosophers. What could I do? So basically, I started this blog, and at least it was basically me and a couple of guest posts here and there. And then slowly, you know, as it got more popular, people were reading it, and I was able to get more people to sign on and write posts. It basically became, instead of mostly me, uh, mostly other people, people either giving us little bits of their work that they're working on. And in many ways, I think the interesting thing about the blog is it became semi-autobiographical. A lot of the writers chose to say something about how they became interested in the things that they were interested in and how their views on what they were writing about a kind of connected to them in some more personal way, which I think has been really uh, phenomenal. So besides being devoted to this stuff about rigorous philosophy and, and profiling people, um, the blog has also been devoted to discussion of issues in the, in the profession that affect women and, you know, women of color uh, and thinking about how to make some progress on those issues in the profession. So I think those in many ways have been some of the most popular posts in the blog, the ones that are challenging some of the structures that we have. So let's talk about some of the, the problems in the profession just a little bit. We have a similar experience among others, and that is the experience of being misidentified, right? So I want you to share with us a little bit about you being misidentified and what advice would you give to help people not make such the awful mistake of misidentifying women in academia? Okay, so I think it's that, you know, the misidentification that we're talking about is, I wrote basically a blog post for the blog Discrimination and Disadvantage about my experiences 
I want to talk a little bit about the details of the experiences, and then I think it will help say a little bit about my views about the phenomenon. Um, and so there's a bit of a backstory here. So I was at the Hypatia Conference, which is a wonderful conference um, run by the Hypatia Journal on di and the people involved with it on di diversifying philosophy. And so uh, I was there to give a talk as part of one of the panels. And I was only there for one night. And my experiences were probably, in terms of misidentification, were the most extreme that I had experienced anywhere. So it struck me as being very odd because I was at a conference that was aimed at diversifying philosophy. So the first experience that I had is that I actually forgot to register for the conference. And so I ended up talking to one of the organizers who very kindly um, allowed me to pay the registration fee and register sort of at the time. They said, just write me a check for $50. I said, okay, thank you very much. And then I realized after the fact, wait a second, $50, that's not, I don't think that's the right amount. So I checked with one of my friends and I said, isn't the amount for professors $100 to register? The person said, yes. I then checked the website to confirm, yes. So this person had assumed I was a graduate student without even asking me. I mean, didn't even think, just basically, and was very kind and very accommodating, but didn't even think to ask me. Then two separate occasions, I, I'm not a feminist philosopher, so I didn't know the vast majority of people that were there. So when I was introducing myself at two different junctions, I explained something like this. I'm at the University of Manitoba, which is my previous position. I'm on my way to moving to, uh, to Michigan. Oh, and then they would say, oh, that's a wonderful graduate program, and so mm. on and so on. And it would come out in the conversation. I would say, well, actually, I'm joining as an assistant professor. And then the amount of surprise, I mean, it wasn't even veiled. It was, oh, oh, oh my goodness. Oh, wow. I mean, that's amazing. Oh, wow. You know, you're just so young or you're just so, you know, various justifications would yeah. come in after, after the shock that was displayed. Then yeah. finally, it gets one level worse, right? By the end of the night, I'm standing with a few philosophers that I do know, um, actually a group of men, oddly enough. We're, and, you know, I was dressed for professionally. I was in a suit. I was there to give a talk. Yeah. Somebody, a young man comes up to me. I could have been anybody in the room, but comes up to me and says, can you please check my coat? They thought oh, that no. I was, oh. you know, a, a, sta a staff member. Um, and so, you know, I mean, for me being at the Diversifying Philosophy Conference, this was about the worst experience I could have. I mean, I had been an assistant professor at the University of Manitoba for four years before that, and I had never yeah. been misidentified as much over that whole time, nor had the shock um, when people realized that I was a professor. So yeah. I think it was something like, you know, University of Manitoba is a really great place, a wonderful, strong terminal MA program, but relatively unknown. So I think somehow, you know, being a young woman of color, perhaps, and being uh, at a place where people, people had actually heard of, somehow was shocking that, you know, someone like that could have a job there and not just be a graduate student. I think that, I mean, that was my experience. And so I guess so that's my experience of being misidentified. And then the second question you asked was, you know, what do I suggest to, how could we improve things? Let me say this, Mina, because some people yeah. may say, some people may say, well, what do, what do women of color need to do in order not to be misidentified, right? So some people may say, well, maybe you need to dress a little bit more professionally, which you said that you were dressed professionally. Or, or maybe you need to, to, to act this way or to be this way, right? And in that way, then you will be like, like them, right? And so they won't misidentify you. So my question is very particular, and that's why I'm asking, what advice would you give them <laughs> so they can stop misidentifying? what we should do is just stop making assumptions that we should truly just approach people with the spirit of openness about where they are and what, what they, you know, so that we don't misidentify people. Don't make assumptions about whether they're graduate students or faculty. But I think we all do this. I'm guilty of this too. When I meet people, I make judgments about where I think they are in the profession. That's, I think, a bit of a human tendency. So what I think really, I, I really don't think, I don't know that I'm, I'm more of a 
skeptic about what I think. I don't know, maybe I'm just agnostic. I don't know what people can do. But what I do think matters are structural changes. We need to see more young women of color in, you know, TT positions at places that people have heard of so that it's not such a shock that there's someone like me that has a job, for example. I think that's what needs to change. And then these assumptions, people won't be so surprised because it would be normal. And that, of course, then raises all kinds of questions of how do we actually make that happen. And I think those are deep, important questions that we all should be thinking more about, I think. A white man may say, well, you know, what's the big I don't see what the big idea is. So someone thought you were a grad student. What is what is the big deal? Just correct them and, and move on. So so for those who may be skeptical about this being an issue or, or, or wonder if we're just being sensitive, what do you think is the harm um, or, or what is really going on? Right. That's right. I guess, you know, the thing is that I guess. Well, at first, I didn't know what was happening. At first, I was like, wow, I mean, okay, person's misidentified me, number one. By the night, that it, by the end of the night, with, I was there for five hours, really. I mean, it happened like four times in a very short amount of time, which made me feel like, wow, what's really happening here? Um, and, you know, there's always self-doubt. Anybody who experiences things like this, you're like, well, this is me. Am I being oversensitive or is there something happening? But when something happens repeatedly, especially in such a short time frame, then you start thinking, okay, there's something happening here. It's weird to see me as being a professor for some reason. Um, and what is really, I really, I mean, I think it's just, like I said, I really just think it's underrepresentation. I think it feels like it's an anomaly. And so people are shocked. And I think it's just not something we're used to. I, I, I think and that's, I mean, you would think in this world, we're so globalized, we're so many different people of different sorts in America and, and Canada and various places that we should all be used to this. But as we know, in philosophy, this problem is sort of endemic. I mean, people of color are tremendously underrepresented, especially African-Americans are really underrepresented in, in philosophy in America. So I think, again, for me, it's all about these structural issues. I don't know what people should do or say. And I think that you are right on the mark when you say, well, people have doubts. When I first posted this blog post, in fact, somebody responded who said, well, you know, I'm a white male, something along these lines of I'm a white male. I don't remember the exact words. Um, but, you know, I've been a misidentified because I'm very young looking. I just took that as a compliment. Right. And so why isn't it just a compliment? I mean, maybe you're very, very young looking. But but even the fact that I look young, I mean, I look young, but not young for a, a woman of Indian origin. This is kind yeah. of what women of Indian ethnicities look like in their mid 30s. Um, uh, we did age somewhat differently than, let's say, your average white person. So already standards of, you know, what a certain 35-year-old woman is supposed to look like are embedded in the way that we're interacting. Mm -hmm. um, and so even that, I mean, but what do we do about that? I don't, I don't really know because when people were shocked and thought that I was basically in my mid-20s, I mean, I'm, like, I'm, I'm looking young, but I'm not looking that young, you know? Yeah. And I, so it, it feels, you know, so it feels like, you know, it's, there's something, there is something else going on there. I'm flattered when someone may try to get my number and think that I'm young. Like, I'm more flattered in that regard, and I'm not, you know, if they misidentified me, it's not what I'm claiming there. I'm pretty happy that I may look young. But when it comes to other issues of, I mean, I've heard a philosopher tell me, a male philosopher who was dressed up in a suit one, um, one night, that someone handed him his keys to move his car. You know, sometimes I think with the young, the youth thing, that, it's, it's as if youth becomes synonymous with boy, <laughs> girl, and not necessarily with age. Youth is not necessarily you look younger. I mean, there's a reason why white people back in the 50s and Jim Crow South call men boy, right? It's not because they look younger. It's because they were boys to them, right? You know, as far as their status in the relationship, right? They were not 
grown individuals who have particular rights and particular uh, adult mentality and all that other stuff, right? So I, I think there's a whole, even the youth thing, right, suggesting that, hey, I just thought you were young, that, that is still loaded, right? That's not a, a, an exit out out of the conversation. I think even that accusation is so loaded, as you, as you suggest. I think you're right about it. I think that you put that very well. I think that's exactly right. Even assumptions about youth are loaded, and they can be racialized in various ways. I agree. I think that's a really great way of putting it. So listeners may be familiar with political thinkers like Karl Marx. Um, you mentioned John Rawls. But they may not be able to mention any Indian thinkers beyond Gandhi. So I want you to tell us. Give us two Indian political philosophers that you believe everyone should know. And why? Yeah, so that's a great question. You're right. Everyone knows Gandhi. Um, but mind you, I don't think a lot of people know Gandhi's work and have actually okay. read because he was a prolific writer. I mean, he uh, wrote many articles for the newspaper that he edited and that he wrote, you know, a few books and people haven't really read his work. So I think one thing is that people know the name but don't know the work. Mm -hmm. So I would suggest even Gandhi is a good place to start. Um, but that's a great question. I think, you know, there are two people that I myself really have become fascinated with. And the first one is B.R. Ambedkar. And he has written a book called The Annihilation of Caste, which has recently um, been re-released. And I think this is a great place, I think a great place to start because Ambedkar was a sociologist by training, but I came to the U.S. at Columbia and studied with Dewey. So he writes very much like an analytic political philosopher. There are really well, you know, developed lines of argument and it's very clear sort of beautiful writing and so I think in that way people who are from like an analytic kind of bend will you know feel a, a, a sense of connection with Ambedkar's work and thinking a bit about democracy and people interested in democracy and questions about um, economic and social equality would definitely find the work interesting. The other, and I should also say, you know, Ambedkar is really important too because he actually played a role in writing the Indian Constitution, and he was a Dalit uh, scholar, so he was a low caste, uh, you know, uh, scholar. He eventually converted to Buddhism, but at least before that, he was a Dalit, and so he's very, in many ways, now as central to the Dalit movement in India, and you know, people still really turn to his writings as part of this movement, so still very relevant today. And so the second person is uh, a woman. Her name is Pandita Ramabai, and she was a very, very interesting woman. She wrote two books that she's well known for. One of which was about the about um, it was called a, a high caste Hindu woman, and it was about the treatment of women in India by higher caste. Indians or Hindus. And the second book was actually about her experiences in America, which was written for an Indian audience, introducing them to some of the issues in America, including uh, racial and gender inequality. And so I think uh, she's a really phenomenal person because like uh, Ambedkar, she's talking about caste and social inequality, but she brings the, the lens of race and gender, especially gender, to the forefront. And she was another really important person in India because she advocated successfully in some venues for real change to educational programs for women in India. So again, another really important person. And I think the great thing about both of these thinkers is they were philosophically robust but they were very, very much interested in doing something. So their arguments are, you know, aimed at some sort of practical goal in a way as well. And I think that makes it interesting. Mina, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I had a wonderful time. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, 
speak, the world will be different as a result.